This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of John, we will be picking up in the middle of chapter 16. We'll be starting at verse verse 16 of chapter 16 and continuing on through the end of the chapter at verse 33. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me because I go to the Father. And some of his disciples said among themselves, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, you will ask me nothing Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language. But I will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and use no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things. And have no need that anyone should question you. By this, we believe that you came forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would prepare our hearts to receive it, this glorious truth, this hopeful truth that though there may be dark times ahead, and though there is sorrow and difficulty for your people as they walk this earth, your son, Jesus Christ, has overcome the world. Write this truth on our hearts and give us gospel hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We go through seasons of life and seasons in the world, seasons in history where things can look very grim. It can look very dark, very difficult. This can occur on a personal level as we face the hardships and trials and struggles of life. Things like rejection from those we care about or the loss of those we care about. All the various things in this life that can cause us grief and sorrow. We can face this as a church as the world intensifies its hostility to Christ and his word and his people. We see this in our nation and our society as moral anarchy takes over and people engage in unrestrained evil. Dark days inevitably come. If you have not yet faced dark days, you will. In the upper room discourse of John, Jesus knows that the darkest of days are upon him and his disciples. He is mere hours from his arrest and trial and crucifixion. Within a day, he will drink in full the cup of God's wrath, dying on the cross to make atonement for the sins of his people. And yet his primary concern in this dark hour is for his people, for his disciples who will be the ones to carry forth his word in his name after he is gone, not only for three days into death, but later into heaven. Jesus wants his people to have hope in the dark days ahead. In these words of hope he gave to his disciples to face the dark days ahead of them are words of hope for us tonight if we would only heed them and hear them. We will look at this text tonight in three points. First, there is a reversal in verses 16 through 22. Jesus talks of how his disciples' sorrow and weeping will turn to joy. Then second, we see Revelation in verses 23 through 28. Jesus talks about how his disciples will receive the truth from on high after these things come to pass. And then third, we see a response in verses 29 through 33. How are the disciples to respond to these truths and how will they actually respond to these truths? So we have reversal, revelation, and response. So first we will look at reversal in verses 16 through 22. Jesus begins this section by saying in verse 16, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Now this is somewhat mysterious speak to describe what is about to come. What Jesus is foretelling in the immediate future is his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension, which have been central themes of this upper room discourse. 
In various ways, from various angles, Jesus has been focusing on this core set of truths. He is about to die, he will be raised, he will ascend, and the Holy Spirit will come after. But because the disciples yet lack this illumination of the Holy Spirit, they struggle to understand the things about which Jesus speaks, even though he has said them so many times in so many different ways. It can be easy for us to criticize the disciples for their lack of understanding, despite all they have seen and heard. But remember, we have two major advantages they did not. First, most importantly, if we are in Christ, we have the illumination of the Holy Spirit that they did not yet have. The Spirit teaches us what these things mean. Second, we have the benefit of history. We know what happened after these words of Jesus. We know that by the end of the night, he was arrested, that he would be tried and crucified and raised from the dead. The disciples didn't yet know that all of this was coming. And a lot of what comes after this upper room discourse reflects the reality that the disciples did not yet have the Spirit's power and boldness. Once they do... You can see, for instance, in the book of Acts, that being on display, things will look quite different for them. What they do, how they act, what they say, and what they understand. But at this point, the disciples struggle to understand. We see in verses 17 and 18 that they have a bit of a side conference where they admit to each other, though they seem to think that Jesus doesn't hear that they don't understand what is happening. They don't know what Jesus is describing. But Jesus, being God, knows they have these difficulties of understanding. In verse 19, he says so. He knows their question. He asks them about it. In verse 20, he first gives them the bad news. They will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. This is the antithesis. This is the conflict between Christ and the world. It's not new. It didn't just start. When the kingdom of Christ and when Christ's people are seemingly subdued and suppressed and weakened, the world rejoices. The world is pleased. The world is happy. The world believes that they have won that they have made progress, that the backwards and bigoted and antiquated ways of the Christians are finally getting what they deserve. It's been a spirit that has recurred all throughout history. It was occurring as Jesus' enemies thought they had their triumph over him in his death. It's the spirit of revolution that has swept across the Western world in the past few centuries the idea is that we need to throw off the bonds of God, of religion, of Christianity, of the old things of the past that have held us down. But these aren't just modern cultural developments. The antithesis is as old as time. It's the city of God, city of man distinction, as the church father Augustine put it, that we've been tracing through Genesis as peoples and nations divide near not merely along lines of parentage and place, but along lines of faith, lines of belief and unbelief. And those lines are drawn even in the upper room. Jesus will suffer and die, and his people will be full of sorrow, and the world will rejoice. 
but that's not the end of the story. Jesus says that the sorrow of his people will be turned to joy. The world might have its moments, but the victory is in Christ's hands and his people will see their sorrow turn to joy. Jesus illustrates this using something very natural. The birth of a child. When a woman goes into labor, it is hard, it's painful, it's excruciating. But once the baby is born and all is well, all that pain is rather quickly forgotten. Because something way better, something far more important has happened. A child has been born. So it is with our Christian life in the face of this antithetical opposition from the world. It's going to hurt while we're in it. It's going to at times be very hard while we're in it. It may even seem too hard at times when we're in it. We're going to shed our blood, sweat, and tears. And we may not in this life see help or relief. We might, but we might not. And yet whether we see, reli- yeah, whether we see relief in this life or not, There comes a day when that pain and sorrow is forgotten. It's no longer what we face. It's no longer what we think about. It's no longer what matters to us. There comes a day when faith becomes sight. There comes a day where God wipes every tear from our eyes and there will be no more sorrow and pain and darkness that we currently face in our struggle against the world. And this future hope inspires present hope. Because we know just as a woman in labor knows that a child is on the way and can so press on, we know that Christ's kingdom will come and his will will be done. And though we may face trials and sorrow and suffering in this life, ultimately we will be delivered and what is ahead is better. If you are in Christ, what is ahead is better. Sorrows and pains of this life are the worst things you will ever experience. Because at the end of this life, you will be with Jesus and there will be sorrow no more. Jesus turns weeping into joy, abiding joy, joy that no one can take away. This is what he says in verse 22. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice And your joy no one will take from you. Jesus' disciples are about to have the great sorrow of watching Jesus be taken from them, being slandered, being beaten, bloodied, and crucified. But that is not the end. So too for us is it feels like Christ is far from us and we face the greatest of trials this world can throw at us. Eternal and abiding joy awaits on the other side. But after this reversal, we turn to Revelation in verses 23 through 28. Jesus' disciples thus far are confused. They talked among themselves because they could not figure out what Jesus meant by what he was saying. Surely this in itself would have been frustrating. They've been with Jesus this whole time. They believed in him, but they struggled to grasp what he meant in his words. 
But just as there is relief from sorrow and difficulty on the other side of Jesus' suffering, there will be relief from this perplexity and confusion and lack of understanding. Jesus says, in that day you will ask me nothing. Now, it's not because the love and the relationship they have with Jesus will be severed. What Jesus means is they will ask him nothing in the way that they asked him then, the way they asked him then, out of ignorance and misunderstanding and inability to understand his words and the things that God revealed. They will not ask Jesus for aid to understand these things because they will already understand them. We've often seen throughout John the disciples and others asking Jesus to show them the Father or otherwise prove that he was from the Father. A day is coming for Christ's people where such doubts will no longer linger. By the power of the Holy Spirit, all that Jesus is and says and does will be made clear to his people, the church. They will know that he is God and from God and his words are the very truth of God. And with this also comes the knowledge and comfort of direct access to the Father. Jesus says they will ask the Father things in his name and they will receive them. Now this would have been revolutionary. For these disciples, they would have only ever known of access to God, access to the Father through priestly mediation. God's glory under the old covenant was something terrifying. Many died as unworthy sinners in the presence of God's glory. Many others thought they would die when they had even the smallest taste of it. It was the entire system of sacrifices and ceremonies which existed to maintain a protective separation between God's holiness and the sinful unworthiness of man. The place where God was said to dwell, the innermost court of the temple, the holy of holies, could only be accessed one day a year by the high priest. Only upon the observance of a very particular and precise set of rules and standards. So the people... All of God's people having direct access to God seemed unthinkable. Yet when Christ died, he tore the veil. He removed the separation through him in his name by his mediation as our, our great high priest that lives forever. We have direct access to God such that we can ask whatever we need of him and know that he hears and know that he as our Father is pleased to give us things that are in accord with his will. Up to this point, the disciples had not asked the Father anything in Jesus' name. They did not know that they could. Now Jesus is making it clear that they can. They can have direct access to the Father because of what he is about to accomplish for his people. We also see that Jesus will make his revelation more plain. In verse 25, Jesus says that he has spoken to his disciples in figurative language. He has used analogies. He has used language that is often unclear to them. Just now, Jesus used this analogy of childbearing to describe how their sorrow would be turned to joy. Many other times he used parables, figures, illustrations, to communicate truths about the kingdom of God. These truths have sometimes been hard to understand. 
Yet a time is soon coming when, empowered by the Holy Spirit, the disciples and all believers will be able to understand plainly what Jesus has revealed concerning himself and the Father who sent him. And we also again see in verse 26 that Jesus says he will no longer pray to the Father for them. This is not because he is abandoning them, but rather because the process will be unnecessary. At this point, the disciples have not yet received the Spirit's power. Jesus has at times said that he would pray for his disciples. He conducts something of a priestly mediation, even in his incarnation. But after Jesus, our great high priest, offers himself as a once-for-all perfect sacrifice, as the author to the Hebrews puts it, then priestly mediation will come to an end. God's people will have direct access to God. Now, this is still a difficult concept for many to grasp. As not the Roman Catholic Church, despite this teaching concerning direct access to God, reconstructed an entire system of priestly mediation. For them, you cannot directly access God, for He is something too holy, something too separate. You must confess your sins to a priest and receive your absolution from Him. You cannot go to God with this directly. You should pray to Mary and to the dead saints or pray through them as mediators because you cannot approach God. You must partake of the Mass, a re-sacrificing of Christ regularly because there must be a continued sacrifice. They functionally deny Christ's once-for-all sacrifice. But the truth is, in Christ... Access to the Father, access to God, is the portion of all his people. We need no priestly mediation. We need no continuing sacrifice. We have our one mediator, whoever lives to make intercession for us. And his spirit dwells in us. And he permits us to ask the Father whatever we please in his name. And this is not merely transactional. It is not as though a loving Son of God has given us access to an otherwise disinterested or wrathful Father. Now you would be surprised how many errors and heresies arise believing things like this, trying to separate Jesus from the Father, separate the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. But in verse 27, Jesus tells his disciples that the Father himself loves them because they have loved and believed Jesus. This would be reassuring to the disciples because they have often struggled to understand what Jesus has said and how Jesus is the revelation of the Father. Jesus here tells them that their belief is adequate. After all, belief itself is a gift. None of us can will ourselves to it. But God has chosen them and knows them and loves them, even despite their continuing sin and weakness. But Jesus then clearly states what is about to come in verse 28. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. 
Now, we could look at this after other things we have seen Jesus say and wonder how exactly this is any clearer than what has already been said. He has already, in many times, in many ways, described his coming and his departure. But for whatever reason, it seems that this time the light comes on. And this brings us to our final point. After reversal and revelation, we come to response in verses 29 through 33. So in verse 29, Jesus' disciples reply, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. This is true. Jesus has just stated plainly where he is from and where he is going. But it's not like he hasn't said any of this before. Even as we have seen in John, even as we have seen in this upper room discourse. But it seems now that Jesus has opened their eyes to understand to know and believe what is true concerning him. And they make a true profession. The disciples, they say, Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. They seem to get it. They seem to understand it. Jesus does know all things and has come from God. He is God in the flesh. He is the only mediator between God and man. And this is a good and right and proper response from the disciples. But sadly, it will not be a permanent response. Not yet. Jesus responds in verse 31. Do you now believe, indeed the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone? Though they now believe and make true profession, they are about to get tested to and beyond their breaking point. That very night, they will go to the garden, and while it is not recorded in John, it's recorded in other Gospels that Jesus' disciples will not even be able to stay awake with him there. That night, Judas will betray him into the hands of evil men. Peter will initially try to defend Jesus by violence, but eventually he will deny even knowing Jesus three times. The rest of the disciples will be scattered and sent into hiding as Jesus is tried and crucified and buried. These are the facts of the situation. So why does Jesus bring these things up now? Is it to chastise and criticize and condemn his disciples who are about to fall away? Quite contrary. Jesus knows that their faith is weak and will waver and falter, but Jesus will not waver and falter in his love and care for them. He first reassures them concerning himself. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus knows and says that they will leave and abandon him, but he will be all right. Not that he will not suffer and die, not that he will not drink the full cup of God's wrath, but he will prevail. He knows it. He has purposed it. He knows he goes to accomplish the redemption and salvation of his people. This will pass, and it must pass. Something far greater than the disciples' doubt and difficulty is in play. Though Jesus will depart, he has already said that he will come back to the disciples and they belong to God. Jesus' words are not for criticism, but for comfort. 
is what he makes clear in verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus didn't tell his disciples of their abandonment and weakness to condemn them. Rather, he tells them this because although things are about to get very dark, very difficult, very sorrowful and painful, though they themselves will fail their Lord, he will not leave them. He will not fail them. He will not abandon them. Quite contrary, he must suffer the things he is about to so that they might be saved. In this antithesis, this struggle between Christ and the world, Jesus here is declaring victory. Not, I might overcome the world. Not even, I will overcome the world. But, I have overcome the world. It's done. From the beginning, it has been decreed. The plan and the purpose will not fail. And though the disciples will see hard things, and though it will look like all is lost, Jesus overcomes. Jesus has overcome even for them, and he will come back to them. Now this comfort is not merely for the disciples that night in Jerusalem. We all, as Christ's people, face many trials and hardships in the world. We face our own failings and the faltering of our faith. Jesus knows, just as he knew in his disciples that night. And yet Jesus' words of comfort to those disciples who were about to falter and fail are words of comfort to us. He has overcome the world. Though troubles will assail us, though we will face sorrow and suffering and struggle, we have the love of Christ and the love of the Father. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and we can know and believe with confidence even in our darkest days that Christ has overcome the world. Christ's overcoming of the world would be shown, it would be proven in the days and hours to follow. He would suffer, he would die, but he would be raised from the dead and he would ascend to the Father. But he has not left his people alone. He has left his word and his spirit so that people might know and believe and hope in him. Jesus Christ died to save sinners and he lives that they might live. Jesus Christ offers forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, this direct access to the Father. So do you have this salvation and its benefits tonight? Christ has overcome the world. In him, we might too. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us for the hope it inspires in us that though we face the sorrows and trials of this life, though in many ways our faith falters and is weak, we can say with confidence that Christ has overcome the world. 
We know that he has overcome the world because he suffered and died for us and yet has come back to us. And he ever remains with us by his word and his spirit. Pray that you would write these words of comfort on our hearts, whatever difficulties this world may bring. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.